Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And we're talking about it fastly, <laughs> because we, these podcasts have been going way too long. We're way too amused by ourselves, so we've set an alarm today, and when it goes off, we're done. We're done. <laughs> so we will try um, not to talk stupid fast but yes <laughs> anyway uh what's astonishing you okay so i have three things that i'm astonished about <laughs> <laughs> i know we just say we're going to keep it short i was like oh i have three things i want to talk about but the first two are really really short the first is i um realized that this is the 125th episode of this podcast. Oh, wow. And I know the world does not care about that, but, you know, we've been out here in these podcast streets for a minute. I mean, we've been doing this, right? That's true. So I just think, you know, that's something to note and celebrate, and um, I'm astonished by that. We've 125 episodes of this. We really like to talk. We <laughs> Uh, yeah, when you consider each episode is, you know, a little over an hour. That's um, Yeah, well, not at the beginning. In the beginning, there are 20 minutes. That's true, yes. So. And then we decided that was not enough. <laughs> that was not enough of us. <laughs> and you know what? More. I was thinking, you know, we started recording this podcast. We did not um, broadcast. We did not upload the first few episodes. Like, because, you know, we started recording while actually walking so mm -hmm. we would we had this um split uh lavalier um microphones and connected into an I iphone and we would walk our walk and talk and the content you know the content wasn't bad but you know traffic astonishingly and, that didn't work who could have who could have foreseen such a thing Anyway. Yeah, so we did hmm. not uh, publish those episodes but uh, yeah we've been doing this for a minute so i just wanted to note that yeah. i'm astonished that you know we're 125 episodes. But you're still in. my friend. Those after 125 we're still episodes. Still friends. Yeah. Um. The second thing, holy cow! Like you know how much I am just intrigued and intrigued by and love uh, the nation of Ghana, and I I do. I wonder if if my ancestry is there or some other place on the continent, but especially in Ghana, I feel like if I had to move, that that's a place where I could live. And um, um, the more I learn about Ghana, the more I'm drawn to it. And um, it blessed my soul last week when I was looking at the analytics of this podcast and I saw that we had a listener in Accra, Ghana. It Aww. just made me feel all kinds of good. So whoever you are, if you are listening to this podcast and you're in Ghana, thank you um, for listening. It was it just blessed me to see someone um, there listening to this podcast because in my heart of hearts, I think I'm either Ashanti or Awe. We'll see. I probably should do, um, what is that? Um, Ancestry DNA, mm -hmm. whatever one of those things mm -hmm. uh, might be. But uh, yeah, so that is astonishing me. Thank you, Ghana. So the third thing <laughs> I'm astonished by, um, I heard a story that I, I, I couldn't believe it, but um, I heard that the Illinois legislature, the state legislature, has passed uh, some new laws expanding 
black history in public schools that they're going to. Yes. um, And that three other states or two or two or three other states have done the same thing this past year uh, and that they are expanding the teaching of black history uh, to be more than just slavery and the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Often when we teach black history, we start with slavery. And this particular legislation says that um, it's going to go back um, 3,000 years. Um, Hmm. So that is just amazing to me. And um, and I've said before on this podcast, you know, I think we need to be doing similar things in the church. When we teach church history, we tend to go from uh, Jerusalem to Rome, um, you know, to Jew. London and Paris, right? No, or, or to Geneva. To Rome, to Geneva, <laughs> to Geneva right? Yes. Where did he, where were the um, 500 theses? That wasn't Geneva. Where were those? Witten, Wittenberg? Oh, Wittenberg, Germany. Yeah. Wittenberg? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. But yes. Yeah. Um, so I am really excited about that. They're going to start uh, officially um, this new curriculum in 2022, I believe, or mm-hmm. 20, no, 2024. I think that's the year. 2022 is next year. Um, and so I am delighted that they are doing that. And I, for me, um, we talked about this a little bit on our, our walk uh, today, that there's just this important work of decolonizing our minds, uh, you mm-hmm. know, especially, especially what we do when it comes to how we see and read and understand the Bible. But just in terms of history in general, um, you know, when you think about, you know, the richest people in the world, uh, who have ever lived. Few people think of of um, this guy in the 14th century, uh, Mansa, Mansa Musa, uh, who was the king of the Mali Empire. And I love his story because he he, he was Muslim and he was he was gonna he's the first um, person to travel across Africa to go to Mecca. But he was so rich that when he stopped in a city, he would like build a mosque and. Um, he gave away so much gold, the story goes, he gave away so much gold to the poor and bought so much on the way that he just disrupted the economy in North Africa <laughs> because of all of the gold that he gave away. And those kinds of stories, that kind of history is important uh, for young people. Um, and so, again, I'm just delighted and really astonished, or like surprised um, in a very good way that um, states are thinking about this kind of thing, and and it goes to show that even in a twisted season like the one we've been in, with, in which there's been so much pain and so much anguish over racism, that, you know, the light shines in the darkness, right? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm seeing everything through the lens of the book of Nehemiah right now, because that's what we're preaching, and it, it reminds me of um, the part of the story that I, I did not preach, that um, our friend Cedric Lundy preached for us, but just, you know, Nehemiah, there's a point where he's in the work of rebuilding the wall and there's fierce resistance and he just doesn't come down. And, and, you know, and there are powerful leaders in his community who are very much opposed to what he's doing. And they are saying all kinds of really disturbing and untrue things about him. And he, for the most part, just lets him talk and continues to do the work. And I think it's helpful, you know, I'm, I participate in social media and there's a, there's a part in particular, I think for everyone where it's important just to say, this is how I see the world. And this is why in a way that is focused on what we're for and, you know, and, and so tangentially that will require saying, 
I'm against this, right? So it's important to enter into that fray occasionally and just speak your truth in love and let the chips fall where they may. And also to recognize that the conversation is not the work. And so the conversation can just rage and rage and rage. And there are people who will just join you in the work of rebuilding or creating something new. And that can happen even if the loudest voices in the room are screaming about reverse racism or critical race theory or whatever. You know, I I think I'm, I'm not a person who says don't be part of those conversations because I think those conversations are forming people. So I think being part of those conversations is important. Um, And there are points in the story where Nehemiah does come down off the wall and say to Sanballat and Tobias, nothing you're saying is true. You're making it up in your head, right? So there's points that you engage. And then there's points where you just do the work in the sphere of influence that you have. And you don't have to go to every argument that you're invited to. And, you know, he prays, God strengthen the work of my hands. And so I, I ultimately, you know, it's helpful because I'm sure that there are people, I'm speculating, but I'm sure that there are people in the Illinois um, body that passed this law who have strong feelings about critical race theory. And that's become such a buzzword to mean whatever yeah. people say it means. But when you say like, okay, but can we teach this part of world history? And people go, okay, that's fine. Okay, great. Common ground, right? And I'm not saying there's not a point to talk about how that argument is being used as a red herring and what it's doing and how it's being used to discredit scholars like is currently happening at UNCC. Um, But also there's times where you can just say, I've participated in that conversation enough. Now I'm just going to do the work. Um, And I think there's lots of places where everybody, almost everybody wants to be on the side of justice. So you can just say, okay, but you know, look at how bail is functioning in our community. Is that, do we believe that rich people are less dangerous than poor people? Is, are those our values? People will say, no. Do we believe that poor people should be punished more harshly than rich people? Almost everyone will say, no. Great. So then can we talk together about bail and how it's working in our community? And can we make some different choices around that? Not based on the culture war that is being fought, but based on building a community that is possible that is equitable where everyone can flourish like I think there's a lot of work that we can do and so we need to balance talking and working and so that's just a great story of like they did some work yes and yes and it was life-giving not just in Illinois but across the country I was gonna say and it's life-giving for everyone not simply for black students and black families but it's like absolutely life-giving for everyone Um, Because I think one of the things that there's so much anxiety right now in the culture is we are losing this idea of who we are, which we've been taught is the, the only ideal and the only good. And so to be able to recover the idea that, you know, is everything about, quote, Western civilization garbage? Of course not. But are there other communities that have flourished and do some of them you know, and have they all had uniquely good things to teach us? For sure. And so, you know, again, like nobody is against truth. And even people who are so strongly against critical race theory, which I'm not even trying to talk about right now, but I want to say like, okay, can you set that term aside? Is it okay for people to learn about the Tulsa riots or the Tulsa massacre? Right. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Let's just learn about it. Yeah. You don't have to call that critical race theory. Yeah. But it is. Yeah. Because it's just our history, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think that that's great. Yeah, and there's a maturing you know, that has to happen because as you lose a sense of this ideal, right? It's almost like when you're a kid, you just have this certain, this certain image of your parents and it's, it's near perfect. And then as you grow up, you see that your parents are flawed human beings and you can go one of two ways with that. Or yeah. actually three, you can just kind of maintain this, this idealistic view or you can say, okay, well, they're trash or you can allow them to be flawed human beings and love them and embrace them. And I think that's 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 kind of where we are with the country, right? We right. see that the country isn't perfect. Okay, so now what are we going to do with that? Is the energy going to be, well, we, we've got to make America great again and put the energy there? Or let's grow up and tell the full story, as mm-hmm. painful as it is. And that full story will benefit us all. Right. Well, and it's very interesting to me because a lot of the conversations I see going on right now, when I was in seminary, I got to study for three years with Elie Wiesel, and we did a lot of reading about different authoritarian regimes because we were essentially again and again studying the history of just genocide and um and it's interesting that, you know, I'm, I'm reading like Alexander Solitsnayev and lots of Russian folks whose names I can't pronounce correctly. Um, and, you know, one of the things that they would always talk about is, you know, people in communist and authoritarian regimes would teach a false version of history. So you weren't allowed to tell the truth about what had happened. You had to basically swear your allegiance to your country by telling telling lies mm. and and it was so interesting like being a young person in those classes and it was very much presented as you know this is not what america is um and and so partly i look back at that and think i mean we really were not ta- thinking about racial dynamics at all in that class in those classes at least not in america so in some ways not as explicitly but it has implicitly it ha- there is some connections between that way but also just huge differences right mm-hmm. and so so it's interesting right now to see people talk as if what they want to teach children in school is not truth right i mean what that all i think all anyone is saying is let's teach the real truth of american history and i I think I've, I know I've told you this story before. I don't know if I've told it on the podcast, but I've been thinking about this lately. Like I grew up, I remember explicitly learning in fifth grade, walking away saying America has never lost a war. We're the only country on the face of the earth that's never lost a war. And we didn't lose Vietnam. We just stopped, but we didn't lose. So that was my understanding of America. And I, and I remember being in my sophomore in high school, AP U.S. history class, and learning for the first time about um, internment camps in America. Oh, wow. And I, I, this is not an exaggeration. That is not a metaphor. I stood up in class and told my teacher he was lying to me. Because I, my understanding of, of what America was, wow. I could not, I could not wow. integrate 
the idea that Japanese citizens had been rounded up and put in internment classes. Like, I, I just thought, you are lying. Wow. That is not true. America is a country that is only purely about liberty and justice for all, and that's not just so it didn't happen. Mm. Uh, and I, I just couldn't, you know, and I was 15, so I think that was a pretty developmentally, I mean, I understand why I reacted in that sure, way. Sure, sure. Um, but I, you know, I think. I'm just having a hard time. Seeing oh, yeah. you can, do can that. you believe yeah, I, me like being dramatic in class? No, um, but I mean, I just think a lot of people I see that response sort of at large in the culture, and you know, I can look back now and say there there are many things to be proud of about being an American. There are, and there are many things to be to grieve and. You know, another person we read, we had one course with Ella Wiesel where we read all the works of Albert Camus, which I don't recommend. But um, what was really interesting in, in reading some of his lesser known works is he really was part. So he was French and French ha the France had a colony in Algiers, which must have been one of their last functioning colonies. And he was hugely unpopular at the end of his life because he was part of the movement for Algerian independence. And people constantly accused him of treason and of hating France and of all wow. these things. And he wrote a lot. He wrote a lot about um, telling the truth about my country doesn't mean I hate my country. It, does, it means I love my country. And it doesn't mean I think the worst of my country. It means I think the best of my country. Like I'm saying this is not in line with who we are, which is why I am speaking out against it. But it's really interesting to remember that. And again, at the time in my early 20s, that seems so foreign, mm. like something that would never be an issue For in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have a very sophisticated understanding of obviously American history or, you know, race relations mm -hmm. um, or racial reconciliation. Um, so I'm growing in that and we all are, but it just, you know, I don't want my kids to have to unlearn a lot of things. And I mean, writ larger, I'd like them to be able to learn from the from relationship with God and from the truth of scripture to have a right understanding of humans mm -hmm. so that when you discover that a nation of people or an individual does a terrible thing, your response isn't shock and horror and anger. It's, oh yeah, this is not a surprise. I know I'm a sinner. I know the people I love are sinners. I also know that we are worthy of redemption, that God has deemed us worthy of redemption it, you know, both of those things can be true. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think this is also, you know, what you just said made me think that this is important for the flourishing and the spread of Christianity because, you know, we believe that God created all people and, and culture, um, culture is neutral, right? right. And so the gospel can um, can have these it, the the truth of the gospel that Jesus came, died, and rose for us that doesn't change. But the cultural expression, as it makes its way around the world, is beautiful. And and there is in the church still this very strong 
Western way of worship mm-hmm. and being church that we need to let go of. And every once in a while, I will, um, I'll, uh, you know, since we've been in this pandemic, one of the great things is to be able to watch services around the world. And mm-hmm. so, um, uh, a couple of times I've tuned into an Afro Brazilian Pentecostal church and, um, you know, the Presbyterian Church of Ghana, which is huge, and and compared to things that I've experienced in historically African American churches, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, the the those things connect three different continents, right? And but there's a, there's an Africanness that just didn't get lost, but we we don't celebrate that, right? Well, and I. I think that it's really important, as deeply uncomfortable as it is, it's uncomfortable to consider the idea that your understanding of Jesus might be deeply shaped by your culture. That's an uncomfortable thing to consider because it then opens you up to the possibility that you might not know Jesus as well as you think, Mm -hmm. which is true. Now, the good news is, you are known by Jesus just as much as you think, right? So you might not know Jesus very well, but Jesus does know you very well mm-hmm. and chooses you and abides in you. Um, but I think it opens us up to this idea that's very uncomfortable to consider, but also important to realize that, you know, when you believe, as I do, in resurrection, in abundant eternal life after death, and when you believe as I do. And as I think scripture leads us to believe that in some way that's beyond our human understanding, we will be joined with the whole community of saints. That is not going to be Western culture, right? I mean, so this idea of God is wholly other and a lot of the ways that we see God feel comfortable and familiar to us because they come wrapped up in the in the construct of Western culture and just to recognize like that might be unavoidable, but at least intellectually we can understand that that is not essential Mm -hmm. and that it will not ultimately be eternal and to just kind of prepare ourselves for that, which is why scripture is, is really helpful because we often encounter God through the lens of whatever first century Middle Eastern culture or whatever, 6th century BCE, you know, Persian culture, whatever, it helps us to realize, oh, same God, but very different customs and um, experiences of God. So, What's astonishing you? I mean, I think I can just say briefly, we had our first live stream worship service last Sunday, which was a really important milestone. And it was First of all, I'm just so, 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 so grateful for people in the community who um, did really beautiful work of figuring out how to use all this technology, which is just, you know, there are a lot of times when the church is facing a challenge, and sometimes I think my default is, I'll just do it. And and mm. I'm not angry about it. I'm not bitter, but I'm just kind of like, oh, it needs to be done. I'll just do it. Um, and I'm not always very good at reaching out and asking other people to help. And, and it really, I think a lot of time does genuinely come from a place of an awareness of the burdens that other people are carrying and just not want, and just realizing like, this is my job. I mean, I have the gift of this being not just my church, but also 
I don't have to go work another job to support my family. So I do want to shoulder more of the burdens. It feels fair and right. And I'm glad to do it. Um, but obviously it's not great. It does limit, you know, the skill and ability and, and pace at which problems are solved. Um, but this just was an interesting challenge, all this live streaming stuff, because it was not possible for me to do it. I just mm. don't have those skills, nor do I have the time or honestly the heart to sit down and begin at zero and figure it all out. And so, you know, trying to get this solved and get this set up was just a harder. It wasn't a matter of, oh, I've got so much work to do. It was a matter of I I cannot do this without help. And so wow. it was just you know, I'm to say I'm astonished makes it seem as though I'm surprised that people in my community could solve the problem. And I and I'm not. I'm just grateful. I'm just so profoundly grateful because I really was feeling burdened and anxious about this in a way that I haven't um, for a long time. And so, you know, I, um, it was great. And I and it and it worked. And we have a lot more um, growing and learning to do in terms of how to do this well. Um, but I was really afraid we were going to push the button on Sunday morning, and it wasn't, you know, just was not going to work. So I'm so 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 grateful that it did, and um, it was a real gift to to be back in that room doing worship yeah. in real time. I mean, we've not been able to create worship and worship in real time before. And it's funny because, and then I'll move on. But like one thing that I've always heard people say, and I know you and I have talked about this before is, you know, a lot of people say, Oh my gosh, I can't worship while I'm leading worship. Um, and, and that is just, especially at the Grove, it's really never been my experience, but it is especially, especially not my experience at the Grove, mm -hmm. um, that I really, do worship as I lead worship. And this, this past year of, um, you know, premiered videos and worshiping from home, it was difficult to worship. And probably that's logistics because having my kids in the room and how, you know, they're just some, but also it just, I mean, it was a real challenge. And so it was just such a gift to be in the room with not very many people in my community at all, mm. but it was just so, it was just astonishingly good and I'm really grateful and I'm really um, just eager for the day that the whole community will be able to come back, which is not this Sunday, but the Sunday after. And I, and lots of people in the community are not ready to come back yet. And that's great. I, I mean, that's, I respect okay. that. That's yeah. really okay. Um, but it will be really good. Um, so I'm, I'm just grateful for that. I don't take it for granted. I, you know, that's what this is always about is not taking the goodness of sure. God for granted and sure. stopping and marveling. And so I just am just astonished at the gift of that. So, yeah, we're not going back until July the 11th, but, um, yeah, I anticipate that it will just feel different than what we've been doing online and, yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to leading worship and worshiping, I find that if I am not worshiping while leading worship, 
if I'm not worshiping while leading worship, then I'm performing. Correct. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah. And, I've, and I've caught myself doing that. And sometimes it's difficult to worship without leading worship because you can very easily slip into like critical mode or learning mm-hmm. mode or you're yes. like, oh, I want to yes. do this for that yes. or I want to do, you know, so just yes. that idea of holding yourself, of, of orienting yourself yes. to remembering of what's actually happening. <laughs> well, um, my, <laughs> here's the way I um, conceive it in my head. That here's, here's my image that um, Jesus is kind of the tip of the spear leading us into um, the holiest place, right? Um, and he is the high priest who yeah. allows us to enter. And then uh, those of us on the platform are are saying to the congregation, <laughs> let's all let's go, go, right? Yeah. And so if we don't go in, if we don't follow Jesus into that holy place, if we're simply performing, Jesus is going to the holy place. We, we've got to go there. Well, and if not, yeah. the congregation isn't going to go. Well, and I think it doesn't, I mean, I think that that the Lord is sufficient even to overcome immature worship leadership. But sure. to your point, I think we need to understand first and foremost, what we're doing is not accomplishing a task on behalf mm-hmm. of the congregation, but we are doing the spiritual work of leading people into Absolutely. worship. And so, you, so I do think the spiritual work, you cannot spiritually lead someone into worship if you're not doing it, right? Like that's yes. the whole point. Um, that's why, you know, it's like m- Carrie, my youngest is in swim lessons right now you know, she gets in the pool and her teacher is in the pool with her. And that, and that's what I think about Mm -hmm. it is like you, we, as we are leading worship, we are, we are in work, we are modeling it, Mm -hmm. but it's also, it's not just about the tasks. So I want to pay attention to the tasks and I want to answer questions about how do we transition from one thing to another? I mean, there's lots Mm -hmm. of practical things to consider, but ultimately even technically wonderful worship, if the people are not worshiping, that's a, I mean, again, God can make a donkey talk. So I'm not saying that it's not worship. I would never presume to say that. I'm just saying we need to understand that you can have what an objective outsider would call bad worship. But it, but if the person is leading you into worship, then holy fire mm. can come. And that's sure. just something that our egos are going to have to deal with. So anyway. So what are you thinking about? Well... I'm glad you asked. This is so. I was reading an article um, this past week, and I and I started to um, to post about it, and then I was like, you know, it's just more complicated than that. So I mm. so I thought, oh, I'll just I'll talk about it to Yolanda. <laughs> so um, the title of this article it, it's from the New York Times, and it's "You Can Feel the Tension: A Windfall for Minority Farmers Divides Rural America." Hmm. I would say, first of all, windfall. I would quibble with that word, but basically, the idea is, as a part of a, a process of restitution, mm-hmm. the government has made payouts to current minority farmers to make up for partially all of the decades when the government made payouts to white farmers Mm -hmm. that minority farmers didn't get. Now, there are very few minority farmers that exist today, and that is not unrelated to the fact that white farmers got bailouts that black farmers didn't get. And so if you know about farming, I mean, A, it's all under threat right now, but 
very few people are first generation farmers. Correct. Almost everyone who is a farmer is a farmer because they have taken over the work from their parents, who yep. took it over from their grandparents. And so, you know, so so there are very few minority farmers left because when farmers needed bailouts and when the United States government said, hey, we have to bail them out or else we're not going to have any food, they gave those bailouts to white farmers. People of color didn't get those bailouts. They lost their land. And guess who got their land? Mm. White farmers, right? And so the government is trying to do some of the work of repairing for that great injustice by making reparations to black farmers, to the descendants of these farmers who didn't get it on all this time. But what is so interesting and what I just find like so, so meta is you read this article and the white farmers are very angry because they are struggling and so, and, you know, and the, the one farmer that they talk about, his name, and this is so great. You think you were making it up, but it's true. His name is Shade Lewis. He's the only <laughs> black farmer in his community oh. uh, in northeastern Missouri. And he got this check, uh, I think, for, for a $200,000 farm loan. And so his neighbors are really angry because how come he gets this because he's black and we don't get it because we're white and this is not fair. To which I want to say, go on. <laughs> well, right? again, having a sense of history matters. Right. If you don't understand the history and you think that everybody just started out on an, on an equal playing field, right, and all things have always been equal – then yes, this would seem very, very unfair. And I think, you know, what I want to say is I can understand people reading this and saying, but Kate, if we are agreeing that it was wrong back then to help white farmers and not black farmers, then how is it right now to help black farmers and not white farmers? Okay. And I want to say that that is a very reasonable question to ask. And so what I want to say to that is, if the government came to your house and burned it down and took it, and or your small business and the government just seized it and took it, and then they came to you 30 years, your children, 30 years later and said, we shouldn't have done that. And we are giving you the money of, for the value for what we took. Would that be wrong? Would that be wrong? That's, you would say that sounds no, no. like justice. That would sound like no. This is the government saying what we did was wrong, and so now we are going to make amends. We are going to give you back what we took from you, and that is what I see happening right now. If it were, if there were no history, mm -hmm. if the United States government had always treated white farmers and black farmers equally, then it would be unjust to preference one race over another. But since the United States government has historically treated white people very differently in terms of government programs, so there have been government programs that white citizens could access that black citizens could not access, for the government now to say, you know what, we want to give you the funds that you were entitled to all those years ago, that is justice, right? And the other way I know it is justice is because all of these white farmers in that part of Missouri, they are, I would, I mean, I think this is a reasonable assumption, 99% of them are farming land that they have because their ancestors received help from the government over the generations, right? So I am not saying that from now on the government should only help black farmers. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. The government should help all farmers, and I think that justice requires that we give back what we took from people when it was wrong. Like, And, and I would also say just, but it's just interesting to me that on the one hand, people, and I get it, can look at the situation and say, that's not fair that, mm-hmm. that he gets it and I don't, but then not take that same take that same point and go, okay, but now can you see how it wasn't fair for generations that your ancestors got it and his didn't, right? And if you see that it's not fair now, then you have to acknowledge that it wasn't fair then. And then you have to ask, okay, how do we get to justice? And part of getting to justice is saying, we need to make amends for what we did that was wrong. Can we fix everything perfectly? No. And are we going to repeat with the patterns of the past, no. Are we going to now say, let's discriminate against white people in the way that we used to discriminate against black people? No. But are we going to say that what we, when we have the power to make amends, to make restorations, we should do that? The answer is, in, in my opinion, the answer is yes. But I just think the outrage that white farmers feel right now, I understand it. And I wish that they could feel it and think, how much outrage, how unfair was it that this happened for so many generations to black farmers? But you can't see them because they're not here because this happened to them, right? Yeah. So I want the white farmers to get bailed out too. I do. I'm just saying it's interesting that it's an injustice when it happens to you, but it's just history when it happened to someone else. And I'd also like to say to this day, I know people in my community people of color who are not getting their stimulus checks, who are not getting unemployment, who are stuck in the system and not getting helped. And I do not believe that it is random coincidence that I don't know any white people to whom that's happening to. I don't know a single mm. white person who's having trouble getting their stimulus checks. I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm saying in my unscientific sample, I don't know any white people who are not getting their stimulus checks. I don't know any white people who are not getting their unemployment. I know several people of color who are not getting the unemployment they're entitled to, who are not getting their stimulus checks, who are caught up in the system, and there's just no agency within the system to fix it. So it's not just ancient history. Right. It's still happening. And I think that's what a lot of, a lot of white people honestly and legitimately don't know because they're listening to authority figures who are telling them it's not happening and they don't have any authentic relationships with people of color to discover that, oh gosh, I see a pattern and I want to be a part of disrupting that pattern or at least telling the truth about it. Because I think a lot of people want to say, we don't need to make amends because everything's fair now and everything is not fair now. But if you only listen to certain voices then they will tell you that it's fair now and if it suits your comfort level to believe it you know you you've got to listen or I think it's not a matter of listening to the other side it's a matter of listening to the powerless right you have to listen to powerless people and if you only listen to powerful people you are going to get a very specific picture of the world and of God. 
And so I think that what scripture is telling us repeatedly over and over again, and what we find preserved in scripture again and again, is the minority report, the minority report, the minority report. Like when you read Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, that's the minority report. The majority, the powerful people were saying, these are nutcases, these are religious zealots, these are traitors, these people are treasonous, God is not with them, they're whack jobs, right? That's what the majority report was saying. The minority report is Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, minor prophets saying, actually, you know, we got a problem here and and God isn't pleased with the way that we're doing things, the way that the powerful people are leading us. So both sides to me is not, is not helpful. If I think if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, one who was crucified by the powerful of his day, both the secular powerful leaders and the powerful religious leaders of his day, the the warning is you've got to listen to people who are powerless. You've got to listen to people who are suffering. You don't have to agree with them. They might be wrong. But if you're not listening to them, then you're not hearing the whole story. Mm, That's good. I'm curious if the article said whether or not the government was giving black farmers money that was equal to what was, what was taken or greater than, like with interest or? No. I mean, A, I don't think there's any way that you can give equal to what was taken because yeah, I, over generations, wealth multiplies. Yes, and that's that that's one of the things that's so curious to me about um, the outrage of white farmers because if, if it was, you know, the, the value of what was lost – you know, I think about in the New Testament, uh, the tax collector Zacchaeus, right? Mm-hmm. When he became a Jesus follower, after he had swindled people mm-hmm. out of their money, he says, I will give it back in what? Three, Four times? I, I, I mean, he times made over. reparations. Yes. He made reparations. And it was like multiple times over the amount. And that Jesus was taken. said, today salvation has come to your house. Yes. So, yeah. And we would hear that. And, and, and I'm assuming that many of those outraged farmers would hear that story in church and be like, yes, this is good news. But it's hard for them to see it in well, this particular context. I, and I think this is one of the problems. Every time we read scripture, we read it as though we are the righteous ones in mm-hmm. the story. And sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes A lot of times we are we're not. not. And so I think this is the problem. You know, you, you hear this story and you think, oh, something's being stolen from me. Instead of hearing the story and and thinking, is it possible that in the past my ancestors benefited from the what was stolen from this person? And, and is it possible that what I have today is not only a product of my hard work, but is also mine because of injustices that were done in the past? And I think, you know, that's something that I, I personally, for a long time... I looked at my own life and thought, you know, I, 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 if I were not a white person, I would still have everything I have today. Like I'm a pastor, like that's not, you know, I could have still, but I think what I, what I've only in the past years started to really think about is, and I think I've said this on the podcast, both of my grandfathers were GIs in World War II. Both of them came home and went to college on the GI Bill. And so that was huge in terms of a trajectory change for my family, right? Because they both went to college. Um, all, both of my parents went to college. 
And they then were able to, you know, because my grandfathers, you know, got the GI Bill, they got homes and were able to pass on a level of generational wealth. Like, I think when people talk about generational wealth, they often think that we're only talking about, like, the Hilton family. Sure. Like, we think you're sure. like, oh, nobody in my family had a fortune to pass down for me, so I didn't benefit from this. But generational wealth can just mean your parents had a home that accrued value so that they could retire or so that when you graduated from high school, you could go to college and they could pay for it. You didn't have to go to work or during your high school years, you could do extracurriculars instead of working a job to help your family survive. Like generational wealth doesn't mean you had a fortune. It means you had enough to let your kids get an education. Right. I remember being a child like a young child driving from Memphis where we lived to rural Mississippi where my parents were from and visiting what I thought what what I assumed was my father my grandfather's um, I was about to say pig farm but we called them hog farms um, I thought I was visiting my grandfather's hog farm he didn't own any of that yeah he was a sharecropper right so after slavery after after the emancipation proclamation jim crow was put in place all of these things were put in place to to essentially re-enslave black people um and i think at least in our family not, not i think i know this to be true like my parents the first generation that when they die, they will leave their children something other than the clothes they wore. Yeah, and I think like what what I think can be a stumbling block is when we use the word when we use the phrase, and I, I'm not I'm not saying we shouldn't use it. I'm just saying I know I, I I'm a white person, and so I have I know how white people think, and I think when white people hear someone say Jim Crow re-enslaved people they say like, well, no, it didn't. People had the right to leave, mm. the right to move or whatever. So I think I think what we need to make sure, what we're saying is Jim Crow became a way of keeping the economic system exactly the same, right? So so did did people have the freedom theoretically to, to leave, to go north, to do, I mean, yes, that was a change. But did it make it then possible for a level playing field? No, no. because- the same white families owned all of the land and all of, to use a Marxist phrase, the means of production and were able to say, here, you're going to be able to, right. And, and post-Civil War, African-Americans who might have owned land or business, like um, the, the Tulsa massacre, right. some of that was just taken or burned or whatever. Right. And I think, again, the Tulsa massacre is something that I certainly never learned about in school. And I was just looking at like the New York Times has a really or maybe it's the Washington Post has a really interesting, I mean, heartbreaking article where they go in and like sort of you can see a 3D model mm -hmm. of what Green Greenwood, I think that was the name of mm -hmm. it, looked like. And just like the the um, I mean, it would be analogous it was called the Black Wall Street. Well, sure. And it would be analogous to like, I don't know, to like. I mean, not Charlotte's not a good example, but maybe like 1970s Charlotte, just if somebody came in and just like burned it all down. Yeah. And if you had a business, oh, well, you didn't get it. Like it just, mm -hmm. oh, well. And nobody, nobody 
not and not just losing the property, but just like murdered 300 people. And so no one going ever... back to this issue with the farmers, what it illustrates is that we still have this um, the separation of us and them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, if someone else does well, it means automatically that I am at a loss. Mm-hmm. So. There is this thinking in white America that if other groups do well, it means that something is being taken from them. Which is such and an... And you see it at the level of, yeah. of public schools. Yep. Right? I mean, that I mean, that really grieves me. And so we, we have lost this sense. Well, I don't know if we ever had the sense that we are in this thing together. Well, and the biblical understanding of shalom... Like there's true peace. The and word shalom flourish. is mutual flourishing, like mm-hmm. interdependent flourishing. So if I'm truly at peace, I cannot flourish if you're not flourishing. Mm-hmm. I can't. It's not possible, right? And that's the biblical model of peace. And I think the secular model of peace is as long as I'm not bleeding, I'm at peace. And well, as long as you're not bleeding or fighting me, even if you are slowly dying, this is peace, right? Peace is, I don't care what happens to you as long as you're not hurting me, yes, right? Yes. And and we call that peace. And, it, and I mean, you can think that, but the biblical model of peace is you do not have peace if if your neighbors are in debt slavery, which is ironically exactly what Nehemiah is talking about. In when he's rebuilding the Jerusalem, he's saying, you are enslaving one another in debt slavery. You have to stop it. Like you are not meant to live this way. And there's no peace here. It, you might, there might be wealth. There might be prosperity for a few people, but there's no, there's no shalom of God here until everyone is flourishing. And will there be difference? Yes. Mm-hmm. But are there limits? Are there God-ordained limits to how much you can grow at another person's expense? Yes. And I think, you know, that the biblical concept of usury, of debt, of interest, not of debt, but of interest being prohibited, like that you cannot make money in a biblical society. You cannot profit off of the desperation of your neighbor. And, And how differently would the world have been shaped if we who pride ourselves of having a Judeo-Christian culture, if we hadn't sort of found a way to say like, oh, that's not, we yeah. that, we're not, that, uh, that you know, the shellfish apply. thing, that matters. <laughs> yes. But the whole debt, like we can, no, we just won't charge excessive interest. That's what it meant, yes. right? So just this way that we pick and choose based on the God of mammon, based on worshiping the God of wealth and saying, I want to worship both. I want to worship God, but I also want, what everything that mammon that wealth has to offer me so we shave edges off of mm-hmm. of the revelation of scripture which is you can loan your neighbor money but you can't make money off of it yes and we are talking about a spiritual issue but what we see in the history of Israel in the old testament is that this spiritual issue has social and political consequences and so we should not be surprised when um other nations that are competing against the U.S. want to exploit this very this this right. this this very division. Well, and one of the huge things that we have to understand is we have this. I think you're saying in the walk like Platonic, Plato-inspired ideal that there is a secular and a sacred. There is a material and a spiritual. That there are there are some things are spiritual and some things are not, and some things are sacred and some things are ordinary or profane or you know, just that, you know, and that is a in, 
that is not a biblical construct. Correct. And that is why we read like Leviticus and we think like, what the heck? Why does God care about the fabric composition of our clothes? Like that's not God's business. Like God should tell us how to pray and how to worship and how to make sacrifices yes. or how to give offerings. But like all this other stuff is like, God, get out of my get out of my breakfast bowl, get out of my cotton shirt. I mean, like none of this is your realm. God, that gets stay in your lane, God. But what the scripture so um so clearly witnesses to us is there is no division between secular and sacred. Yeah. Everything is spiritual. Everything is yes. spiritual. And um I can't remember which scholar said this and has written about this that when you read the creation story in the book of Genesis that the six days of creation, um, they are the same steps or they're similar steps to the creation of an ancient temple. Mm -hmm. And when you get to the end of creating a temple in the ancient world, what do you do with that temple? You put an image of the God. And mm -hmm. what, does, what does the Lord do? He creates human beings mm -hmm. in God's own image. image. Yeah. And so this world is meant to be sacred space. God's intention was to create, God's intention was, I should say, is, is. to create a human family um, that God dwells with on this planet. Not beam us up, Scotty, right. to heaven, but here. Right. And that is something that, again, we could were we willing learn so much from indigenous people about their understanding of there is no separation and and we sort of think you know our view of that we think oh that's just some sort of john wayne cowboy movie that's not real and to say like no no our scripture affirms this view of reality it's just we've been taught not to see it yes yes right. yes so anyway uh <laughs> what are you thinking about slash what are you preaching about? Like we have four minutes. I don't know why you did the sign. We're transparent here. We have okay, four yes, minutes we have and then four, we're ending Four this. minutes and I have to pick up my child. I am thinking about very little, practically <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Listen, seriously, I, my head is just full blown in the countdown to my three week vacation that's coming up in June. And I am seriously having a hard time just staying in the game until then um, because, you know, I've said on this podcast before that I've just had a level of fatigue uh, during this pandemic and um, I am looking forward to my three weeks of vacation. And so, yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking about. And, and I'm I'm thinking about also during that time, um, I know some things have to change in terms of my patterns of life and work. Yeah. That, you know, we keep talking about this new normal uh, that is upon us. And uh, that's true for the church, but it's also true for my life. There mm -hmm. are some, some habits in my life that are not evil. They're just not going to work post-pandemic yeah. uh, in, in terms of both family and ministry. And I need to really think through those um, for uh, my own flourishing, the, for the flourishing of the ministry, and, and for my family as well. Well, I hope that when you are on vacation, you will give yourself the gift of unplugging from the world. Mm. I mean, not from me, <laughs> but from the world. Um, because I think, you know, you care deeply, and it is also just 
important for all of us to have times in our lives when we say like, okay, I need to rest and God is going to be, you know, is going to be providential. And I just, I care and just, I'm going to set my care down Mm -hmm. for the next extended period of time. So I hope, I hope that you will do that. Um, I've already talked a lot about on our walk, but also in this just Nehemiah. So I'm preaching Nehemiah. What about you? What are you preaching this week? Well, um, I think, you know, I was going to preach Nehemiah this week, but you know, every once in a while you will start working on a sermon. You you may even start uh, doing the, uh, the study for it. And then you'll get midweek and say, no, this is not what I'm supposed to do. And you Mm -hmm. just put it down. I think I'm having, and, but then later on, you're like, oh, that thing that I started months yeah. ago, I'm supposed to preach that now. And I think I'm in that this week. Uh, so months and months ago, it may have even been like last summer, I was thinking about uh, preaching, uh, what is it, Luke 15, the prodigal son mm-hmm. um, uh, text, and emphasizing that word prodigal, which means extravagant. Mm-hmm. Uh and it can be extravagant in a good way or extravagant yeah. in an evil way. Um, but I just have this sense that as the church goes back to in-person services, as the church starts to think again about its programming, its in-person mm-hmm. programming, that we need to be very intentional about being prodigal in terms of our extravagant giving um, uh to our neighbors, our extravagant risk-taking for the sake of our neighbors, our extravagant being present in the community. Because the reality is, and I think this is what I want to emphasize in the message, you know, God has been prodigal in lavishing grace upon us. So we are at the same time the younger brother who has come home. And there Mm -hmm. is a celebration for us. And we sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And we are in this season the older brother who is, um, who wants to conserve, who wants to say this is for us. It's about our comfort. This isn't fair. This isn't fair, right? And Mm -hmm. and to be, oh, here's what I want to talk about. We we can't be, we can't be so grief-stricken about what we've lost during the pandemic, that we focus only on ourselves, that now is the time to be, yeah. uh, as, as our denominational constitution says, that we risk the life of the church for the sake of the mission that Jesus has given us. Yeah. Now is the time for us to be um, filled with imagination and love. We cannot, we and I said this to our session, we dare not get it wrong in this season because too much is at stake. And it's not about us. It's not about the building. It's not about the property, not the programs that we used to have. What's at stake is will the church be faithful in mission in this season? And a lot of it is going to look like just plain old scary risk. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what I what that opens up to me in that story, which is so interesting to think about, it's so interesting to think about how the son who leaves was exhibiting the same traits as the father who loved. I mean, like it was the son's was prodigal in his desire for self-pleasure, but that was just a manifestation of the kind of prodigal love he had always received from the father, right? So his whole life, he had experienced himself as so loved and so worthy and so honored because his father had loved him like that. And so he he took that trait, 
I mean, like father, like son, he took that out and he expressed it for a while in a way that was deeply unhealthy. Um, but, you know, found his way home. Right. And I think one of the things that we see in scripture, and I see it obviously the most obvious place is Saul, that like, it wasn't that God said, Saul, you're a piece of garbage persecuting my church. You can just go ahead and burn in hell forever. That God said, no, I'm going to take your zeal and I'm going to channel it for the good of the kingdom. And so it's interesting just to imagine like how the prodigal son might have expressed his prodigal nature on the other side of reconciliation, right? And how we could do the same, right? That's good. And how maybe even the older brother who was reacting to the extravagant nature of his father's love and sort of trying a different path and needed to grow into that, right? But just that idea of like, we are prodigal people. And You know what? I I just have to interrupt you and say, taking that week off from preaching did you a lot of good. Because you were on (laughs) fire when we were walking. You were talking about Nehemiah. I was like, you know... Thanks. That yes. I mean, it is helpful to realize. You yes, just need to I hope break. I get some of that on my vacation you because yeah, have it. But I do fire. think it's interesting. I know we got to quit, but it's interesting to think about even in the church today. We have a lot of prodigal son churches, right? Like churches that are teaching people, live your best life. You can have whatever you want, whatever you want. God wants to give it to you. Like yeah. we have a lot of churches who are teaching grace as like just limitless self pleasure, mm. right? Ooh. Right. I mean, we see that. Right. Like that's the prosperity gospel. And and what we need are people to understand that we're called to be churches that are like the prodigal father that are prodigal in their love and yes. prodigal in their giving and prodigal in their hope are prodigal in their, yes. you know, because ultimately we we understand understand ourselves to be so beloved right. that we can give because we're connected to the source who gives to us. Right. And so we, we don't lose anything. Right, but the prodigal son understood himself as so beloved, which was correct, mm-hmm. that he could take, that yes. he had every yes. right, yes. you know. And so that, and I just, I see that. I see a mm-hmm. lot of Christians who feel, who are being taught to follow their desires and follow their hearts and, you know, I'm going to be exceptional, but not for the sake of others. I mean, that's that Rachel Hollis woman mm-hmm. saying, "Don't I don't want to be relatable woman. I don't want you to be relatable either, but you're supposed to be unrelatable in your love for others and yes. your serving for others and your, in your contentment, right? Possessing nothing, but having everything right. Wow. Like, and that, and that's where we're called to be proud, but not this, not this grace that makes us the ultimate self-justified takers, yeah. which is how the, the enemy has twisted yeah, the gospel you're on fire. I think chains. you should preach my sermon this Sunday. That, nope. That's fantastic. Negatory. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for listening. Um, we will be back next week because Yolanda is not going on vacation next week. And we're going to pull up some some sermons to share in the weeks when he is out. Um, but if you would like to learn more about what God is doing at Derrida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A Pres.org, and you can check out their worship services, worship with them on their YouTube channel, which is Derrida Pres YouTube channel in Charlotte, North Carolina. Search for it. And you can listen to Yolando's back catalog on the Derrida um, Church podcast, which you can find on the Podbean website. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove. Um, our website is thegrovecharlotte.org. Look for the green tree. You can worship with us online um, on our Facebook page at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, which is a lot of fun. 
or in person in two weeks. That would be exciting. And if you want to listen to old messages from the Grove, they are all on our podcast, which is the Grove Church podcast. Look for the green tree. You can get it on iTunes or Yolanda loves it when I say this wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all so much for listening and we will talk to you next week. 